Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast. No relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cadden, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. Hello, and welcome to another Sunday bonus episode of The New Abnormal, and we thank you so much for being here. Today, we have an extra special guest with Elliot Ackerman, who's a former Marine Corps Special Operations team leader and the author of The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, and he's going to talk to us all about his new book. But first, let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some clips? Hell yeah. Not especially. Go on. <laughs> this is, I'll listen to the clips. Okay, good. So the bad news is we're going to talk a lot about Mr. Trump today. The fallout still continues a week and more later from his home being raided. But outside of that, there's some people like Carrie Lake, who former local Fox personality who now running for office. Well, she's, as the kids say, simping for Mr. Trump. He is gutsy. The guy has bigger... Okay. <laughs> Wait, let me think about how I want to word this. My staff always says, whatever you do, do not say balls. So I'm not going to say it. That guy... has a backbone made of steel. I'll tell you what he's got. I don't know if you heard of this, but he's got BDE. Anybody know what that means? Ask your kids about it later. I call it Big DeSantis Energy. Right? He's got the same kind of BDE that President Trump has. And frankly, he has the same kind of BDE that we want all of our elected leaders to have. Oh, boy. Really sorry. You know what's bad about that clip? Everything. <laughs> She's actually pretty charismatic. It's true. I mean, so like, even though whatever she's, I mean, she has terrible, terrible case of brain worms, but one of the worst I've ever seen. But you can tell she's actually really charismatic. No, absolutely. But I mean, to be talking about Trump having big dick energy, like, I don't know, these people are all, there's a pathology that I can't wrap my head around and they all need to be under somebody's care. That's the brand. I know. You want my hot take? Please. Carrie Lake actually has BGE. What I mean by that is Ben Garrison energy where she's projecting something <laughs> absolutely insane onto Donald Trump that doesn't exist. For, for those who don't remember, Ben Garrison's the idiot who draws Mr. Trump with humongous muscles with machine guns and is just 
really horny for him. You're absolutely right. It's the same thing. It's the people who draw the cartoons of Trump as the big muscly guy when he's, well, look at him. (laughs) But it's just unbelievable. And like, that's what they want in a leader. Big dick energy. It's like, okay. Also just amazing that like, as we always say, it takes so long for these people to get a term that everybody was using two years ago. More. Yeah. And look, as a lot of people pointed out after she said this, like this is the same party that doesn't want kids to be told that gay people even exist because it's they shouldn't be talking about sexuality with kids. And she's sitting there saying, go ask your kids what BDE means. Amazing point. Okay, well, the simping continues. The former President Trump's eldest son's fiance, Ms. Kimberly Guilfoyle, she feels like they all do. She feels like she's been wronged and the family's been wronged. They love President Trump and they want him back in the White House. That's what this is about. Yeah. Time and time again. President Trump has been exonerated. They have been pulling this stuff on him for six years, starting with illegally wiretapping him at Trump Tower, which everyone says, oh, you guys are making this up. That didn't happen. It happened. Yeah. President should sue them for that, by the way, because it's a legal wiretap. He's entitled to penalties and fees because of that. That's a whole other story. But he is the singly most persecuted person in American political history. But people who are Democrats, independents, libertarians, whatever you want to say, they're all coming out in droves to say they support the president. So all they have done is just magnify his excellence 10x more to the point where the American people are begging. Literally, I see people every day begging him to run again in 2024. And we would be only so lucky as a country because he's the only thing standing between them and us. Literally, he's understood. Understood. Let let me let me cut in real quick. First of all, I think a couple that shares their stash is good for them. I think they're going to make it. <laughs> That's traditionally what happens with couples who share their stash. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to name names here, but let me pose a question to you. Do you know what it takes to be the worst person at Fox News? You're the expert on this, Andy. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to go down this road? No, it's Kimberly Guilfoyle. It always was. She did get fired, right? Yeah. Remember, this is the woman who, after the whole Roger Ailes thing, was calling other women at Fox and saying, you better get out there and defend him. And I mean, look, my general thing is when you want to know how a person is, ask like the hair and makeup people at the network. Right. They're still in a coma. That's all I'll say. Ask the hair and makeup people at Fox about what working with Kimberly Guilfoyle was like. I don't want to because (laughs) I am scared. I know what they'll say. I've read. I mean, she, the thing that I love about Kimberly Guilfoyle is that she has the goods on Donald Trump Jr., And I think the big question is now what happens? The only thing that would be good about this is if Biden decides not to run and Gavin Newsom jumps in and it's Newsom versus Trump. And for those who don't know, Newsom used to be married to Kimberly Guilfoyle. But she did have a different face then. Well, that's true. That's (laughs) true. It's true. I mean, like, you could look at that picture and think that was a different person. A hundred percent. Absolutely. That would really make for an interesting race. Truly the best race we could ask for. I mean, it would be horrendous, but yes. But from a podcasting perspective. Oh, yes. That's what matters. Yes. Yes. Speaking of Fox News, there's a personality, former Representative Sean Duffy, who people may know as having a similar ascent to power as Mr. Trump. He came from reality TV on The Real World, then rose to power, now is retired in the graveyard of Fox News. He has some thoughts as well that we're going to listen to. Do you think former President Trump is a flight risk? Where is he going to flee to? 
His plane has his name written on the side in giant gold letters. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. If only we had thought of that. (laughs) Your Honor, my client has a driver's license. He will not be fleeing to Mexico. He has a license plate. See his name in giant gold letters. (laughs) I mean, we know that. I that's amazing. I hadn't heard that clip. Look, spot the lie. He's not wrong. <laughs> when I was watching the real world San Francisco back as a wee lad, I did you not knew. feel like they they found the best contestant in him. And <laughs> I did not know the way I'd be vindicated in the future. <laughs> My God. So we last week, we were making fun of the simple son, Eric, a good deal and just saying how sorry we felt for him. But I have to say, I think he said something prescient this week that I'd like to hear your thoughts on. It's not even the Republican Party. I'd say it's actually the Trump Party. Uh, if you look at all the people who have been successful. You know what I like in that? It's where he talks about how his father has killed others. Mm, yes. Killed other Republican dynasties. Kill being an interesting. <laughs> like, I would think that kill would be a phrase I might not pick. Yeah. Kill is more for when you go on those set up hunting safaris where they do everything for you except fire the actual shot, and then you pose over the animal like you're a big shot. That's Eric's version. But he's not wrong. He is absolutely not wrong. It is Trump's party. And by the way, that's true whether or not Trump is the nominee in 2024. The party has been completely remade in his image. And even if it moves past him, and even if someone like DeSantis gets the nomination, it's still Trump's Republican Party. I just like that he got his father's genetics of saying the quiet part loud. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But none of his father's charm or charisma. No. 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 One last thought. One Charlie Kirk. He has a new culture war to pick with those liberals. It's actually not new. I think we may have even covered him doing this before, but he's got a culture war that he'd like to start. It's about indicting the college industry. I didn't go to college. And <laughs> yeah, we I know. Think that, you know, a lot of young people need to consider that path. Uh, look, the college cartel has done such damage to our country. I believe the college cartel is no better than the Mexican drug cartel. And what they've done to our nation's youth, the bad ideas they've been spreading, the idea pathogens that have been infecting the inner core of our society. I love the college cartel. I would like to get in this cartel. But you know how proud he was when he came up with that? Can you just picture it? Do you believe he came up with that? Fair point. It's pretty dumb, though, so he might have. I don't know. No, that's like... But you're probably right. You're probably right. That is probably the smartest thing anyone he's paid has thought of (laughs) in a long time. I got a different wager. He either came up with the dub pathogens idea or the cartel idea and then mixed the two metaphors poorly. Because, yeah, that's how you make it good is to mix the metaphors. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's what they teach you in college, Andy. If you had just been in the cartel, you would know that. There was an episode of the great comedy show Community that was called Grifting 101, and Matt Berry played a con man who taught a class on grifting. And I feel like if that were a real thing, Charlie Kirk would have gone to college. He's absolutely right, because classes like that don't exist in college. There was really, there was no reason for him to go to school. He didn't need to go to school to learn how to be a grifter. It's just, you learn by doing, like any trade. So, not a surprise that he didn't go to college. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or I prefer don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Elliot Ackerman is a former Marine Corps Special Operations team leader and the author of The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Welcome to the new abnormal, Elliot Ackerman. Thanks for having me, Molly. You are younger than Jesse and I, but that's okay. <laughs> Not really, though. <laughs> right. Jesse and I don't like it when our guests are younger than we are and have done more, but okay. So what we were talking about before we started taping was um, that you have written a lot of books, really in rapid succession, which I'm a little bit also jealous about besides being younger than me. But um, you started talking about how you started working on this book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Well, you know, it actually wasn't a book that I was planning on writing, you know, a year ago in August as, you know, Afghanistan was collapsing and the fall of Kabul seemed imminent. 
Um, I had a, you know, just an exchange with my editor and, you know, and he basically said, listen, you know, not a lot of people have been paying attention to Afghanistan. Maybe there's an opportunity here to publish sort of a short 30,000 word paperback original, some of your writing on the subject. And we agreed that we would do that. And then he went off sort of on his end of summer holiday and I did the same. And that coincided with, you know, the last two weeks of August when Kabul collapsed and there was this very dramatic evacuation at the airport. And I wound up uh, being, you know, being sucked into some of those efforts to get our Afghan allies out of the country and sort of coming out of that very intense two weeks. It just was very, it became obvious to me um, that this, that was all, that was a story that needed to be told and that this book we had quickly agreed to do, um, would become, uh, the story, uh, of those last two weeks of the summer, kind of in addition to the, a larger story about, you know, what happened over these 20 years in Afghanistan. Well, you just explain to our listeners, for those who don't know you, a little bit about your relationship with Afghanistan. Before I, became a writer. Uh, I served as a, both a Marine Corps infantry officer, special operations officer, and then later as a CIA special operations officer. And that was all about eight years. And I served in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So I, I, I am a veteran of the war. How did your relationship with Afghanistan change over the course of all these years? You know, it's a 20-year war. So it has had this very consistent and enduring uh, presence in my life. So, you know, I've, I've had a relationship with the war or had a relationship with the war longer than I had a relationship with my own children or even with my wife. So when the war is suddenly is ending, it's, uh, I mean, it's actually, it's a little bit disorienting because this thing has been sometimes at the forefront, but a little, at least always in the background um, of my life. And so the book is also, um, you know, it's part memoir and it's part, ha- a part deals with the subject of how war can feature in someone's life for so long. Did you have people in Afghanistan who you had relationships with? And when this was happening last year, what was your involvement there? Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, many people that I've had enduring relationships with who are still in Afghanistan or, you know, Afghan comrades of mine who are, you know, maybe worked with me, you know, one was my interpreter, for instance, and he has since migrated to the United States, but his father, his mother, and his sisters were still in Afghanistan, uh, as well as his younger brother, uh, who was still fighting in an American-backed unit, and they all needed to get out. And so I was involved very much, you know, with, with getting, helping get them out of the country. Most of the people whose cases I was involved in actually just were not people I knew. Uh, these were, were strangers who were, who were put in touch with me. So you were involved in doing one of the, like, I knew other people who were involved in that kind of trying, like Evan McMullen, who were trying to kind of get people out. Did you feel, I mean, what was that experience like? You know, it was really a, a crowdsourced effort. So with you know, people just sort of figuring it out as they were going along and everyone knowing what they could kind of bring to the table to help the effort from people, for instance, who are good at fundraising and new high net worth individuals who wanted to help, who, for instance, would be willing to contribute a lot of money for a private jet to fly into Afghanistan. Um, You know, at one point I was involved with an effort to get out the Afghan girls robotics team because a number of people in Silicon Valley were very keen to get them out. And that plane was paid for, but there were more seats on the plane than members of the girls' Afghan robotics team. So we're trying to fill up that plane with people, um, which, you know, in and of itself is surreal. 
So people being involved with those efforts, you know, other people who were journalists on the ground who were willing to kind of step away from their roles as journalists and work as activists to help Afghans navigate through the, the Taliban checkpoints into Kabul and get to the airport. The value I think I was able to add to some of these efforts was, you know, I have a pretty good network still in the in the military and uh, in the intelligence world. And so was was fortunate that, you know, a couple of good friends of mine were at the airport and I was able to, through them, sort of help navigate groups of Afghans into Kabul International Airport through the American checkpoints. Um, so when I say this was crowdsourced, it was really, you know, a, a team kind of coming together online, figuring out what each person could add to the effort and then trying to, you know, get these pe- get these people onto flights. A lot like the fall of Saigon, right? Right. If the fall of Saigon, if we'd had, you know, Signal and and WhatsApp and uh, and been connected in the way that we're connected today. Did people not get out too? Yes. Plenty of people did not get out, unfortunately, and are still there. And, you know, some of whom, you know, we're still trying to get out. Biden talked about the withdrawal from Afghanistan for the first time in 20 years. The United States is not at war. Is that right? Well, it certainly begs a question, right, Molly? Like, what does it mean to be at war? So if his definition is the United States is not at war for the first time in 20 years because there are zero troops in Afghanistan, that doesn't seem to hold up under scrutiny because we still have troops in Iraq and in Syria and in Somalia and in places like Nigeria. So does that mean we're we're at war in those countries? Sort of what is the criteria for the United States being at war? I don't bring it up just sort of as like a linguistic parlor game, but the stories we tell ourselves about war and how war, what it means to start a war, what it means to end a war, you know, is very important for how we think about war and the strategies, strategies we apply to our wars. You know, and I would argue that the idea that the only way to have a successful outcome in Afghanistan was to have complete and total peace in Afghanistan with a troop presence, U.S. troop presence of zero is probably not a strategically sound position from which to embark upon uh, any effort uh, in Afghanistan. And it doesn't, you know, and it doesn't hold up to historic efforts. I mean, listen, like, look at this, you know, look at the Second World War. We still have troops in Europe or the Korean War. We still have troops in the Korean Peninsula. Um, we need to have, I think, a little bit of a more nuanced understanding about what what war means and how do we, and how we advance our interests uh, as a country. So I don't think President Biden's statement that, you know, for the first that the, for the first time, the United States is not at war in Afghanistan is accurate. And I would also just add, it certainly isn't accurate because you know we just what ten days ago killed the head of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. So clearly, we're still shooting into Afghanistan. Well, and also, aren't we? In war in Ukraine, I mean, even if we don't have troops there, I mean, that is clearly a war. Right. And so I think overly simplistic narratives about war are not helpful. Do you, like, I mean, when you look back on your experience serving, I mean, what are the things you sort of learned from being in the field that you feel could be useful to the rest of us to sort of understanding foreign relations and and war and what's happening right now. If you were to say like, if there's one, I feel like lesson that should be lit up in lights at the end of the, the war in Afghanistan and the forever war, I think that that lesson is we as Americans should really pay attention and be cognizant to the ways that our war, our wars are structured. You know, every war that we have fought since the revolution has had a structure around it. And a structure is kind of, you know, what sustains the war in terms of blood and treasure. So 
you know, the Civil War, the first ever draft America has it has in the Civil War. Same thing with the first ever income tax. So that's the blood and treasure for the Civil War. Second World War, we have a war, war bond drives and a national mobilization and a draft. Vietnam, a very unpopular draft that leads to an anti-war movement that ends the war. The war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the way those wars are constructed is the blood comes from our all-volunteer military. That's who has fought these wars. And the treasure comes from our deficit. You know, the last year America passed a balanced budget was in 2001, and there's never been a war tax. The result of that construct is uh, that the American people have been anesthetized to the cost of war. We don't feel the war. It's not a critical issue in American political life. And our politicians, thus, have been given this very long leash to go out and wage war. And I think we as citizens should be extremely skeptical of any American leadership that would want to go to war with a construct by which we, the American people, don't really feel it, because that is sort of a construct in which they as politicians won't be held accountable. And that lack of accountability is what leads to 20-year wars. You wrote about bringing back the draft, a very controversial idea. Do you think that could really solve the capriciousness with which leaders go to war? Well, I think it would certainly solve the capriciousness with which leaders go to war. I mean, the question is, is it politically viable that we are going to necessarily bring back a draft in peacetime when there isn't a truly existential threat to America's survival? And, you know, I, I, I think no. I don't think that, you know, I haven't put my poll in the field, Molly, but I have a feeling right. like that's not yeah, a very, super not popular very popular idea. I'm probably not going to win my congressional seat by, yeah. uh, by making that my issue I'm going to run on. But... I listen, I bring it up in my writing because I think it's something we should talk about because when we do talk about it, it makes us see more clearly and understand more clearly the ways that we do wage war when there is no draft and we don't have skin in the game. So, you know, the draft has been, you know, has always been a moving target in American life. There's sometimes this assumption that like, you know, in Vietnam, every single person who wore a uniform was drafted. That's not true. Um, it was uh, about 25%. Actually, there were more draftees in the, in the war, in the Second World War military than in the Vietnam era military. So, you know, do I think that if we had a U.S. military today where maybe 5% or 10% of the ranks were draftees, would every American be paying much closer attention to the issues of war and peace if they knew that when their son or daughter turned 18 years old that that, that, that person, that young person, would have a one in 10 chance of having to serve in uniform? Yeah, I think we would be paying very close attention to these issues. And it might change the conversation or at least move the conversation about war and peace, um, more to center stage in American life, and that could that could be a good thing. I'm like obsessed with the idea of a year of national service. Mm -hmm. It's funny because it's like it's so unpopular. Yeah, but it's it's beloved by both the left and the right. And I think the idea of national public service also gets to the. I mean, listen the the U.S. military and national public service has done you know, it's done a couple of great things in our society historically. It has been both a tool of incredible social mobility, you know, the GI Bill after the Second World War, the post 9-11 GI Bill. I mean, if you serve a, a four-year enlistment and are honorably discharged, you'll get your college paid for at any public or private university across the country. But it's also been a tool of societal mobility, but it's also been this incredible societal leveler in our atomized American society where we keep, we are just more and more self-segregating um, the military and public service forces people of different backgrounds to do something together for a year or two years. 
And again, I think that would be healthy in American society at this point. Yeah, me too. I really am quite fixed on it. This was super interesting. I'm so excited to read this book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Thank you, Elliot Ackerman. Thanks so much for having me, Molly. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.